0: Hello and welcome to the Five by your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. This is Mike and we have a fantastic episode for you. We have Stephanie reviewing Kanagawa. Ruth brings us a spoiler-free review of Seafall. I talk about automobiles and Mason reviews Trois. But before all that, we have Lindsay kicking off our first ever episode with her review of Order of the Gilded Compass.
1: Hello, pleased to meet you. My name is Lindsay and so I'll be discussing Order of the Gilded Compass. This is a 2-5 to five player dice assignment game published in 2016 by Gray Fox Games and is designed by Jeffrey D. Allers and Bernd Einstein. Ever since I was a child I've been intrigued by archaeology, stemming from a girlhood crush on Indiana Jones and a love for ancient history. I once said if I haven't decided on profession by the time I'm 30 years old I'll become an archaeologist. A pipe dream that didn't quite pan out. But I did become a lover of modern board games and one of the things I love about playing games is that you can immerse yourself in different settings and be an active participant within them. So admittedly it was the title and the theme of this one that caught my eye first of all. However aside from the title and the theme the next interest point was that this is a dice assignment game and I don't own too many other games employing this mechanic so I took the plunge and bought it. In brief you are playing as a treasure hunter seeking invitation to join a prestigious secret society of archaeologists. You go about this by choosing a number of buildings depending on the number of players in your game and the variant you wish to use. There are A buildings that you are required to use, the library, university and archives. And then B and C buildings such as the Sunken Galleon, the Auction House or Hidden Temple. Each turn players roll a set of 8 dice and assign the dice rolls to a building. Each building allows for you to assign in different ways. For example at the Auction House players assign dice in sequential runs and you have to assign a different sequence than the previous player on the building. Each building gives you something to collect, like magical items, specialists, maps or reroll tokens. The game includes two variant options for 2-3 to three players. You can choose Variant 1 that gives you fewer buildings and less conflict, or Variant 2 where you have the same amount of buildings as a 2-5 to five player game, but you use two neutral dice in addition to your own that you can assign during the game, but you must always use your own colour dice each turn. I think it's important for me to at this point that I've only played two player. I think some would argue this wouldn't work so well as a two player game. But actually it's been really rather enjoyable. We played using Variant 2 because my partner and I actually enjoy the conflict element. And using the neutral dice added a somewhat take that element to the game. So at a time when other players would be jostling for a space on a building. Instead you're using the neutral dice to say well if I'm not getting that then you're not either. And minimising your opponent's options. And of course this side of playing doesn't suit everybody and that's a point to consider if thinking about playing this as a pair. And if this doesn't suit your style, you can always choose variant one and just do your thing and accumulate points without being a big meanie. But in my opinion, that is the somewhat easier but friendlier version. I'll confess that my first game I found a little bit clunky. It took me a while to warm to it. Sometimes I'll love a game from the first play. Others I'll persist with until holding my hands up and saying like, look, I made a mistake with this one. But I'm pleased to say that all the Gilded Compass did not fall into the latter category. It just took me a couple of games to get the feel for it and care about whilst doing anything. And when that clicked for me, I really started to enjoy it. My favourite combination of buildings so far have been the Illuminati and the Treasure Hunters Guild, along with the A buildings. The Illuminati give you more opportunities to manipulate your dice rolls, and the Treasure Hunters Guild gives you more secret mission tiles that allow you um, more to aim to and greater bonuses. A real positive of this game is there is a huge amount of replayability when experimenting with different combinations of buildings to find what you enjoy the most. I also love games where the end scoring is satisfying, and this is very much the case here when you tot up what you've accumulated. For example, when you assign two different specialist types of matching colour to a map and a magical item, you can really boost your bonus points. I also like the fact that even though it is a light game and there's not really an opportunity for any long-term strategy, it requires a good deal of thinking and decision-making in the moment, using what you have to your advantage and being smart about it. It's also worth mentioning that this game is a re-implementation of Aaliyah Lacta S, which was published in 2006. I haven't played that, so I can't really compare. Having read the rule book to Aaliyah, it doesn't seem to be radically different in terms of general gameplay as far as I can see. In regards to packaging and theme, this is definitely the prettier of the two, and the new theme suits it rather well. Although, in my opinion, the theme isn't too strong within the game. You could paste anything to it and it would still work. So to summarise, if you like a box packed full of components, where you first open it and you're like, what does this do? What do all these things mean? Then you'll love unboxing this game and discovering what it's all about. You'll enjoy this game if you fancy something light, but gives you lots to think about with plenty of opportunity for point scoring at the end of the game. And I think that's my five minutes up for today. You Have been listening to Lindsay on Five by Games, and you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube as Shiny Half Meeples, or visit my blog at www.shinyhalfmeeplesblog.wordpress.com. Until next time, bye.
2: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Twa. Trois. Trois was originally published in 2010 by Pearl Games and printed here in the US by Z Man. It was jointly designed by Sebastian Dujardin. Xavier Georges and Alain Orban, and illustrated by Alexandre Roche. When I got into hobby board games, Trois was one of the first real games I played, after Carcassonne and Castles of Burgundy. It's still one of my favorite games, so I'm really happy that it's just coming back into print from Asmodee. Trois has a lot of things. It's a worker placement game, a resource management game, and a dice allocation game. It's fairly strongly themed, and it's nominally about rebuilding the city of Trois in medieval France. Winning Twa is about balancing your influence, your money, and your victory points, like a lot of other games, but here they're all directly interrelated. You're rewarded in Twa when you thwart threats to the city, but you're sort of competing cooperatively to get rid of the bad guys. There are interesting choices to make every round about the amount of resources you're willing to allocate to rebuilding the cathedral, to growing your wealth, to influencing the church and nobility, and of course to staving off marauders, pestilence, and raiders. Twa is pretty highly interactive for a Euro game. Now, you can take other people's dice pay them a pittance, and then use them in your own plans. You have worker meeples that are your family members, and using dice allocation, you're placing them in the church, city hall, and the military, which in turn gets you more dice to use, but then you're also sending them out to get jobs and do activities so they can bring money, influence, or points back to your family. A lot of the magic in Twa, for me, is the ability to combo professions and activities. So you might go hunting to gain 3 influence, and then use those 3 influence next turn on the artisan to gain 18 coins, which you would then use in later turns to buy up a bunch of other people's dice and convert them to victory points by taking a pilgrimage. Besides the player interaction and the interconnectedness of systems, Twa is just dead beautiful. And it's the game that made me fall in love with Alexander Roche's artwork, and it's one of the reasons he's in my top 5 board game artists. Shout out to Beth Sobel, Vincent Dutre, Clemens Franz, and Michael Menzel, who are the rest of my top five. I have the original Z-Man printing of Trois, and I haven't seen the new version, but I'm led to believe that they are interchangeable and basically indistinguishable. There's an expansion for this game, called The Ladies of Trois, that was, for a while, one of the most expensive and most highly sought-after expansions in the hobby because it was out of print and there were not very many copies of it to begin with. Fortunately, Asmodee has seen fit to reprint the expansion as well, and it's very, very high on my list of things to purchase this year. We've played Twa about a dozen times on the table, and probably another dozen on Board Game Arena. Twa lends itself really well to online real-time implementations, though I think playing it turn-based might feel a little slow. Including the expansion, there are 57 different activity cards available, but you only use 9 in each game. As a result, there are no single strategies that work every time in Twa. It's not always the case that a game is both highly variable and also highly replayable, but I think that Twa is. There's a whole separate discussion to be had about how we should stop using those two terms interchangeably, but this is neither the time nor the place. There's a set of player mats available that you can download from the file section of Board Game Geek that I think are absolutely essential. They were designed by Evan Derrick from FanRider Games, who's the designer of Dark Moon. I had them printed on canvas, and I wouldn't play without them now. So, if you're a fan of Eurogames, if you're a fan of Medieval France, if you're a fan of dice drafting, if you're a fan of worker placement, then Trois is a game for you. Twas a solid 9 for me, and I give it 5 out of 5, cathedrals built from dice. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, at Mason A. Weaver. Join me next time for the first of my new classics series, where I talk about the role selection card game, San Juan.
0: Hello there, it's Mike. and Today I wanted to talk about one of my favorite and most played games for 2016, automobiles. And as much as I'd love to do the whole start your engines bit for this review, car racing has never been a big draw for me. Best I could tell from my dad, its sole purpose was to provide hours of meaningless noise and something to occasionally curse at while working on the family cars or just kind of mucking around in the garage. But a race in board game form? That has always struck me as an ideal distillation of the basic concept of gaming. A race to see who wins. And I've hemmed and hawed for years over which game to get, with many being almost perfect but just short of what I really wanted. Well, my indecisiveness and procrastination really paid off last year when David Shorten AEG released the superb bag builder. In automobiles, you race by drawing seven cubes out of your bag each turn. If you draw a gear cube, you use it to move your car forward to the next matching gear space. If you draw a special ability cube, you use that ability. Handling performance and engine cubes all help you either move by treating your gear cubes differently, move based on your position in the race, or move based on what cubes you have in your player board. Garage and pit cubes help you remove wear and other cubes from your player board before they go back in the bag for future draws. As the draw is random, you really need to balance the need for flexibility with the need for cubes that will move you the fastest. While the bag draw certainly adds randomness to the game, the overall feel of automobiles is very strategic as you buy cubes based on their abilities, the layout of the track, and the way your opponents are racing. The double-sided board requires different quantities of different gears depending upon if you are racing the stock car oval or the curves of Formula 1. In addition to the five types of ability cubes, there are four different cars that can define the abilities for that type during the race. Each car not only acts differently, but they cause the different cubes to interact differently. The rulebook even gives several recommended car combinations that make the races feel very unique. There's a lot to consider. But each card and ability are very clear and easy to understand, so it's not cumbersome. The other main strategic part of automobiles is the brilliant use of wear. As you race around the track, you gain wear cubes in relation to how fast you went that turn. The faster you go, the further you go, but also the more wear you gain. To the point if you do not remove them, they will eventually clog up your draw, leaving you going nowhere fast. You can avoid gaining wear cubes if you manage to draft behind another player that turn. But once you have wear, the only way to remove them is by either skipping your whole turn for a pit stop, or preferably using those pit or garage cubes during your turn. So, does this game accurately simulate what it feels like to race a car? As someone who isn't a huge racing fan, I can't say with certainty, but I don't think so. I feel more like a crew chief making decisions of how we're going to strategically run this specific race, mixed with how a driver may feel tactically choosing what to do this turn based off of what they feel the car can handle at the moment. Kind of the Legends of of Racing, which is probably why I like it so much. This game for me is the perfect melding of mechanisms and theme, and also fun and strategy. If you're still unsure and wish to try automobiles before buying, there is an excellent implementation on Yukata that is free to play. Mr. Short himself has kindly lapped me there more than once. Seriously, he's very polite while crushing you. Unfortunately, one shouldn't talk about this game without addressing the elephant in the room. Or in this case, two elephants. First is that the first edition had some component issues. Nothing too serious. For most people, it's just missing the cube bag for the fifth player. But my copy also had a dented board. Both were quickly corrected by AEG. The second is that the much-anticipated expansion to automobiles is being boxed with expansions to planes and trains with an MSRP of $80. So while I would love to own the three new tracks that come in the expansion, and the drivers with their special abilities, that is unfortunately out of my price range. It's a good thing I enjoy the base game so much. So much so that Automobiles is not only my racing game of choice, but also my bag builder of choice. A game that's definitely worth a try if you have the opportunity. If you have any questions or disagreements about Automobiles, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly.
3: 5 by listeners, I'm Rith, and today I wanted to talk about Seafall. Designed by Rob Davio and developed by jerry Honeycut, Seafall is a legacy game published by Plathead Games in 2016 and features art from Jerry Blando, Rob Davio, and Brian Valiza. Now I will be prioritizing avoiding spoilers for unlockable content over covering all of the reasons I love it. Legacy games feature ongoing changes to roles and components over the course of multiple sessions, with permanent changes remaining game to game. Unlike previous releases, Seafall wasn't built upon an existing game system, but is instead an entirely new game designed specifically for this legacy-style format. The game features high adventure, combined with a choose-your-own-adventure style storytelling, with larger plot points revealed as players achieve quest-like milestones to unlock new content. Set in a continent split into five provinces, Seafall takes place in an age of exploration and discovery, as those provinces develop seafaring technology and set out to discover what lies beyond their shores. As the player ships explore the West searching for the fabled island at the end of the world, they hope to earn enough glory along the way to have their leader ascend the throne and become emperor. Provinces can earn that glory in a multitude of ways, including exploring new islands, raiding, improving their province and ships, completing milestones, and collecting treasure. This allows for a variety of focused approaches to the game or for dabbling in a number of different directions. And while the milestones can steer players in a particular direction, choosing to ignore them doesn’t necessarily mean a player won’t be competitive. When the target glory value for the game is reached, players will complete the round and declare a winner. But it's actually a player's cumulative glory that matters. At the end of each game, players are assigned to noble titles based upon their total glory from the campaign. And when Seafall ends, it will be the current prince or princess who will be declared winner. However, these ranks also determine turn order, break ties, and later in the game have further consequences. And in all of those cases, things fall in favor of the player with a lower rank title. The tension between staying in the lead to try and win, with staying a little further back to get more advantages, is pretty interesting and it helps keep everyone in the game to some extent. On a player's turn, they take just two actions, and available actions have been divided into guilds, each representing three possibilities. The player must choose a single guild to take both actions from, which reduces the variables involved in planning a turn, and helps keep things a little more focused than if all actions were always available. Successfully completing some actions will direct players to read aloud a passage from the captain's book, which ends with a choice. The consequences of their decisions can have short- or long-term effects on the player's province, and can advance the story and theme of the game. Because each player's turn can have a significant impact on everyone else at the table, players remain invested and interested in every action, reducing the likelihood of attention wandering off. At the end of each session, there will be new areas and opportunities opened up, and permanent enmity is built up, making some areas increasingly hostile to particular players. However, buildings, ship upgrades, and treasures obtained during the game all reset, so players start the next game on a relatively even playing field. The unlocks and small end-of-game upgrades, however, allow them to go further and do more during subsequent games. I really, really like this reset system. It means a player can't just build and keep the best technologies game to game, which could make them impossible to catch. The combination of varied paths available to players, the many possible end of game upgrades, and the story unfolding via the captain's book has meant that each province starts to take on its own character and feel. Even within the prologue, we faced a plot point that left us stunned and demonstrated how quickly we'd started to feel attached to our provinces and their occupants, as we'd named them and played through their story. As we've progressed and added new rules and possibilities, the game has just gotten more and more interesting, and I leave each session replaying decisions in my head in order to learn for next time. Overall, Seafall reminds me of Merchants and Marauders from Z-Man Games. However, action resolution in combat is a lot more intuitive and streamlined than in Merchants, which allows for more play and less rule checking. I really enjoyed Merchants, and having this campaign game give a similar feel but with so many more possibilities has been a veritable joy. It's definitely not for everyone. The combination of Euro and Amerithrash sensibilities may not appeal to purists in either camp. And we've had more than one ship sunk due to a failed dice roll. If that sounds maddening to you, I'd caution you on committing to the full campaign. A typical Seafall campaign lasts roughly 15 games of about two and a half hours apiece, so there is a time commitment, and I can't imagine it playing nearly as well with fewer players than our five. That being said, the game provides directions on adding or removing players partway through, so if you're not sure but your group is amenable to potential cast changes, it's worth checking out. And if Seafall appeals in the slightest, I highly recommend playing it. It's been showing up in various online sales in the $50 range, and for a game with this high quality production, with over 30 hours of adventure on the high seas, that's one heck of a deal. It was my game of 2016, and every time we play it, I love it more. Until next time, I'll be sailing the western seas in search of hidden treasures. But if you need me, you can reach me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as roof—that's an R, four O's, then an F. Thanks for listening.
4: Howdy, listeners! It's Stephanie Stone Rob from Five by Games. So, at this year's BGG Con in Dallas, while I was walking the vendor market. There was a charming looking game at the Yellow Booth, a game of ever-expanding panoramas featuring delicate depictions of flora and fauna. It was gorgeous to look at and I wanted to get my hands on it. Fast forward two months and Kanagawa designed by Bruno Cathala and Charles Chevalier is a game I have yet to grow tired of. In this game for 2-4, to players take on the role of students Stunning under the great Edo painting master, Katsushika Hokusai. You are all probably most familiar with his painting, The Great Wave of Kanagawa. As his student, you are trying to prove your artistic worth by creating the best and most harmonious panorama featuring animals, plant life, pagodas, and people. At the beginning of each round, cards are played onto a bamboo mat for players to draft. In turn order, players can choose to take one of the cards or press their luck and pass and wait for more cards to be made available. Once a player has drafted the available card or cards from any column they choose, they can opt to play the card to their studio, which lets them improve their artistic knowledge, opening up more styles of painting they can do, or they can choose to play the card to their panorama if they already have the knowledge in their studio and the paint resources to do so. The cards feature a creative solution, where the right half of the card features the scene to add to your panorama, while the left side can be slid under your player board to show the artistic knowledge that you have acquired. In addition to the endgame scoring for the quality of the artist's panorama, Players can earn points during gameplay by receiving a diploma for reaching certain milestones, such as painting a panorama that features three different characters, or a certain combination of animals, or a certain number of trees. But this element involves a decent dose of strategy and a bit of pressing your luck. So, say you're the first player to paint a panorama containing three trees. You could take the diploma for painting those three trees if it's still available. Or, if you liken yourself a tree painting master, you can reject that available diploma and hope to complete yet another tree to snag the four-tree diploma and hope it's still available when that fourth tree is painted. Don't complete that fourth tree? Well, sorry, Charlie. You rejected that three-tree diploma and you can't go back and take it. The longer you wait to take diplomas in the five categories, the more points you could earn, but the greater the chance of other players snagging them before you do. Once the deck of cards runs out, or once any player has added 12 scenes to their panorama, the game is over and it's time to tally up the scores. This game scales extremely well as a two-player game, but with turn order happening quickly, play with the full four doesn't feel clunky at all. My husband and I played it as a two-player game at Con, and we were able to set it up and figure out the basic rules in just about 10 minutes. The game is light enough to teach to new gamers, but there's just enough strategy to keep experienced gamers engaged, especially those who appreciate games that are just really pretty to look at. And speaking of... I can't talk about Kanagawa without giving a huge shout out to the artist, Jade Mosh, whose illustrations are featured on the cover and on each card. Her work in this game is perfectly themed, yet unique in board game art. Even though the rules were pretty straightforward, I will say that the rulebook isn't the best laid out. Look, it's a minor complaint, but it was one I felt was worth mentioning. So, that's Kanagawa from Yellow Games. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay playful.
0: Thank you for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 Games, Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or just follow all the links on 5 Games.com. Thanks for listening.